This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Elliot Abrams, who is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. He served as deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor in the administration of President George W. Bush, where he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East for the White House. His most recent books are Tested by Zion, the Bush Administration and the Arab-Israeli Conflict, and he edited with Elliot Cohn, Choosing to Lead American Foreign Policy for a Disordered World. Mr. Abrams, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? New York City. And uh, how did your parents shape your thinking about the world? Well, I would say one thing that was quite interesting. My father was an immigration lawyer who had, uh, you know, grown up in the Depression, worked his way through school, managed um, then to help people coming out of DP camps in Europe to get to the United States. I think that had an effect, partly because we were surrounded by people who spoke lots of different languages, came from different places, and all of whom loved America, whose dream was to get to America. I think that sort of drove me away from the new left back in the days when it was um, so ideologically, intellectually powerful in the 60s, let's say, talking about America spelled with a K. I see. Um, I never went for that. And and it, uh, uh, did uh, was there discussion at the dinner table around world events, uh, uh, the uh, world jewelry, uh, yeah, I mean, human rights, and so on? I would say my parents were um, sort of normal, if you will, mm-hmm. um, middle class Jewish Democrats. Um, you know, people like Adlai Stevenson and Eleanor Roosevelt, not to say Franklin Roosevelt, you know, were secular saints. Um, there wasn't a, a heck of a lot of politics. Um, I mean, everybody we knew had the same politics, basically sort of moderate to liberal Democrats. And and when you say that the, the setting of your father's work and the environment in which you live, the, uh, you're saying that it made you more of a patriot and actually someone who thought about the importance of defending what America stood for? Yeah, I think it was a couple of things. I think, one, even in New York, which is where I grew up, you can um, live a life in which the rest of the world is not really part of yours, but the rest of the world was always part of our life growing up. My father was going to Europe in the 50s um, to uh, try to help people get to this country, and uh, all of his clients were, by definition, uh, foreigners trying to become Americans. So I think there was just more, generally more international exposure than in the typical, even the typical New York um, family. But I think it's also true that the caricatures of the United States that were widespread in the 60s, we're talking about the Vietnam War period, uh, uh, Watergate, um, uh, never had any appeal to me because that was not the America that I was raised See. What about your religious identity? Was that that shaped during this early period? 
Well, yeah. I mean, we were, we were um, again, pretty typical in the sense that we were not orthodox. Um, we had a kosher home, but uh, we did not. We, we went to synagogue only on um, two or three days a year. Uh, so from a practice point of view, um, it was not something that, that uh, was constant. But from the identity point of view, yes. I mean, I'll just give you an example of this, which people, I think, find quite amazing. Um, but I remember it would have been roughly, nine, I think it was 57, 58, 59. Um, if somebody came to our house to buy our car, my father had advertised it in the newspaper. And um, the agreement was made, and these people came. And you know, came into the living room and signed the papers and everything. This was a big event because they were not Jews. And my parents' social circle was entirely Jewish. So having people in the house in a kind of social setting who were not Jewish was a big deal. So from a kind of community and identity point of view, uh, we were very strongly Jewish. So uh, what about your early education? Were you in the public schools? I was. I was in public schools for um, elementary um, school up until ninth grade. Um, and my brother had gone all the way through uh, to college. And when he got to college, um, thought, and he was actually valedictorian in his high school class in New York City, thought his preparation had been poor and advised my parents if they could possibly afford it to send me to a private school. So that is where I went for high school. And then after uh, high school, uh, where did you do your undergraduate work? Harvard uh, College and Harvard Law School. And uh, what did you major in as an undergraduate? Government. And uh, what, what, what field of the law were you interested in the law school? Or, what, what, or was it just a general education? Uh, yeah, I law? think we're, you know, what, what do you do if you don't like the sight of blood? You can't be a doctor, right? You've got to go to law school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I did. I'm, uh, I don't, you know, things like constitutional law interested me most. Um, actually, I loved law school because it is... Um, I still think intellectually fascinating and challenging. I didn't like practicing, and in fact, um, <coughs> tried it twice and didn't like it twice. So um, I really practiced, I'd say, in my whole life, about two and a half years. And, and uh, uh, I'm thinking here now about skills as somebody who's a foreign policy uh, analyst and uh, actor in political, in, in foreign policy, Kennan always was critical of lawyers <laughs> in foreign policy. Do you agree with that assessment, or did the law help you think through uh, the policy debates? I think law school is, <coughs> pardon me, a great um, intellectual discipline, because I think in a lot of graduate schools, if I can put it this way, there's just a lot of baloney. Um, you can get away with saying anything. There, are, there, are, there's no dis intellectual discipline. Whereas in law school, there's a great challenge where fellow students or professors will say, "Defend that. Why is that true?" and come up with counterexamples. Um, I teach at Georgetown uh, part time, and one of the things I always ask my students when they're taking a position in a paper, uh, example, Yasser Arafat was right or wrong to refuse to sign um, at Camp David. Um, don't just say why you're taking your position. You need to come up with the best alternative arguments. What are they? Show that you know what they are, and then knock them down. If you can't knock them down, maybe you're wrong. That comes from law school, I think. 
Uh, I do agree with the criticism that lawyers, uh, lawyers are de more, too deeply involved in process. Um, and, you know, you get paid by the hour when you're a lawyer, so process mm -hmm. is good. That's how you get your, your Mercedes. Um, <laughs> and I think that, that we see that in American foreign policy. And, you know, a good example, we'll talk about this later, but um, the Middle East peace process, which has now been going yeah. on for about 30 years, very American approach, process, uh, endless meetings. It's really kind of what lawyers do. So I, I would agree that there is a, there's an issue here. Uh, after you, you also did uh, an MA at the London School of Economics. Did you study political science there? <coughs> did that help at all? <laughs> uh, I, well, it was yeah. I did a I did a master's in international relations. Mm, it was fun, uh, and uh, you know, it's just more time studying more um, different issues. Uh, I wanted to go to Europe for a year before going to law school, which I was sure I wanted to do. My parents thought going to law school directly was a good idea, so we compromised. And mm -hmm. I could go to Europe for a year if I could get a degree out of it, so that's what I did. I did a lot of travel that year. It was great. Uh, when you came back, you, you worked for uh, two of the uh, great liberal senators, uh, Senator Jackson in his campaign and, and Senator Moynihan. Uh, that was a very different world. Hmm. What, what distinguished them and their commitment to the Democratic Party and to liberal values? Well, um, both of them were very much internationalists. Both of them were very much patriots. Um, both of them were very much interested in human rights. Uh, both of them were deeply anti-communist. We're talking about the height of the Cold War here. So um, Jackson, for example, was a big critic of the Nixon, Kissinger, detente policies. Um, this, these are the years, you know, when, for example, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is allowed out of the Soviet Union and he comes to the U.S. and President Ford won't meet him. Um, this is the kind of thing that Jackson was criticizing. And then, of course, with Moynihan at the U.N., standing up for the United States, fighting back. All of this, I thought, was great. And um, it was uh, a losing fight in the Democratic Party because we're talking here about the late 60s, early 70s, the McGovern nomination. Uh, Jackson had obviously opposed, he had run against uh, McGovern for the nomination in um, 72. He ran again in 76. I actually came to work for him in 75. But this was a battle for the uh, Democratic Party. And... Uh, in his uh, acceptance speech at the convention in 72, McGovern used that now famous phrase, come home America. That was not what Jackson and Moynihan stood for. They stood for a very robust defense of American um, interests and values. Speaking of your, your background and your father's work and then working for these two giants of the Senate, the, the notion then, as I remember, was one of an assimilationist America, that America would uh, bring people in and they would become patriotic Americans and uh, uh, develop the skills of the culture and be committed to it. We're in a very different world now, and I'm, I'm curious about uh, how you see that yeah. change where the emphasis now is identity politics. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. I mean, uh, Moynihan was the junior author with Nathan Glazer mm -hmm. of Beyond the Melting Pot. 
It was a very different world. I think um, it was, in this sense, a better world. That is the notion of, of Americanization. I'm struck by the fact that, um, well, you see all the data now about asking people, how many justices are on the Supreme Court? Um, how many houses of Congress are there? What century was the Civil War? And people, college graduates, do not know the answers. I think it's because um, we don't teach it. That is, we don't teach American history. We don't teach civics. Um, I'm old enough to have had some of that back in the 50s in elementary school. And, and I think it's a big mistake because what we're saying basically is, no, 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 um, we are non-judgmental. The worst thing you can be nowadays is judgmental. Um, every culture is equal to every other. Uh, there is no such thing as American culture. This so-called Americanization is a form of, of oppression. Well, I don't believe any of that. I think there is such a thing as, as American, American culture. And I think that immigrants should be exposed to it. Um, certainly in our public institutions of, of education, learn about American history, uh, for example. Learn about, um, the, about American uh, government. Um, you know, what percentage of, of kids graduating from, never mind high school, college now, have ever um, been asked to read and discuss the Constitution or the Federalist Papers? I think the answer is not many. Um, None of that is good. I think, I, I think from that point of view, we were doing a better job educating people uh, decades ago. Now, we're at a point now where we have the highest number of foreign-born um, people living in America since World War I, since, I think, 1914. Uh, so the question of Americanization arises again. Um, and I don't think it's um, so surprising that you see a kind of nativist impulse and an anti-immigrant impulse when the numbers get high. But the solution, in my mind, is not to close it off and end immigration, which I think is one of the ingredients that makes America great. Uh, the answer instead is to go back to the wisdom we used to have about, about um, teaching people how to become Americans. You, you have, uh, uh, been, have written quite a bit on the survival of the Jewish community in the United States, and you're committed uh, to preserving Jewish identity. I'm curious how you navigate <laughs> these, the, these two worlds in a way, because you, you, you very much believe in a strong identity. Uh, on the one hand, you're very concerned about uh, the erosion of the Jewish community. But on the other hand, uh, as you've just stated, you, you really believe in assimilation and, and so on. H how do those two things go together in your mind? Well, I think they do because I think, um, you know, you can be a very devout Mormon um, and, um, you know, fully Americanized, assimilated uh, American. Likewise, very devout uh, Roman Catholic. Um, so I don't see why that it shouldn't be true in the case of Jews as well. I don't see that there's a. Um, I don't see that there's a problem here. Let me put it that way. I think um, education is probably the answer. I mean, the way um, education and religious practice, the way Mormons do it, um, and you know their numbers. That is, their retention numbers are are quite high. Uh, Orthodox Jewish retention numbers are quite high too. And and here I'm not talking about something that I don't approve of, which is, or would not want to practice in my own family, which is a complete isolation from the rest of the culture and community of the sort that some uh, ultra-Orthodox groups do, even living in their own 
physically in their own separate communities. Um, all we're talking about here is um, education and religious practice, and I don't see that as um, in any way contradicting uh, assimilation into broader American life. I mean, uh, the notion that someone, for example, let me just take this example, federal judge. You, you can't be a federal judge um, if you're as devout a Roman Catholic as, say, Antonin Scalia, um, or if you're an Orthodox Jew, or if you're a Mormon, you shouldn't be a, what, a cabinet member? I, these are all nonsense. So I, I, don't, um, I don't see it as a public policy problem. I see it as internal, internal problem of the Jewish community, largely revolving around schools. Uh, the the uh, identity issue today in American politics, is there something different, qualitatively different, about uh, the identity being asserted by certain groups? Well, I think there is. I think um, there is a resistance to, if you will, Americanization. Now, there was always this problem at the religious uh, level. If you go back, uh, I learned this from Pat Moynihan, mm -hmm. um, there was an awful lot of, of anti-Catholicism in the Protestant elites, and the elites in those days were entirely Protestant, really. Um, so when Roman Catholics built up their institutions, for example, universities and Catholic schools, the desire was not to remain apart from America. It was to say, but we still want to be Catholic. I think now there's uh, sometimes more of a desire um, not to be assimilated at all. Now, one of the reasons this happens, I think, is, is um, clear. Um, if you came here 100 years ago from... Um, Germany, Poland, Italy, Ireland. Ireland, you're talking about 150 years ago. You couldn't really go back and forth, and you didn't. You were pretty much here to stay, or you went back to stay if it didn't work out. Uh, nowadays, of course, because of communications and transportation, uh, it's a lot easier. And we're also getting a different kind of immigration, which is to say we're getting a lot of immigration from um, countries just to our south. Um, and the numbers are very high, so that you're getting less assimilation, probably. Um, I don't, I have to say I'm not very worried about that. I, it seems to me, okay, maybe all that makes it a little bit slower. So instead of taking, you know, one generation or two, it takes an additional big deal. Um, I think if you look at the Hispanic community in America, the Latino community generally, the trend is clearly toward the kind of integration that we saw 100 years ago or 50 years ago. I'd like to ask my guests about the skills and temperament that uh, go with the kind of work they do. Hmm. We've talked about your legal background and how it's helped you. Are, are there other skills and temperament uh, uh, that you would recommend for students if they hmm. get in the cauldron of foreign policy politics? Well, here's one thing that I tell students. Uh, I teach at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Everybody wants to be Secretary of State. That's what they're hmm. there for. Um, one of the things I tell them that surprises them a bit is you need to choose a team because politics in Washington is a team sport. You're not going to be appointed today Assistant Secretary of State because people know you're the most brilliant person who ever lived. A Democrat or Republican is elected president and staffs up. And you need to be on that list or that list. So um, choose a team. Uh, that doesn't really get to your question, but I think it's, it's good advice. A second thing I say to them is, uh, write. 
That would have been a foolish piece of advice 40 years ago, but now because of the internet, it isn't. And I've given this advice to people, and what happens is you start writing for some obscure website or your own blog, and if it's really good, somebody sees it, and you're invited to do one piece here and one piece there, and, and one person in this category ends up with a intermittent column at the New York Daily News, which sells a million copies a day. There are websites, foreign affairs, foreign policy. You know, there are a million of them. You can get your name around so that when the time comes for you to uh, perhaps get one of these jobs, you've got a, a list. Read this. I've done this. And people can say, this is, this is a smart woman. This is a smart man. Um, and in terms of, of professional training, I would have to say I'm not so big on having done this on government courses, and I'm much bigger on history mm -hmm. um, because I think people don't know any history, and I would include me. I mean, I, I didn't nearly know enough history, and some of it you learn, I mean, I, self-education after college, but I think it would be better to do that in college, and I would add to that languages. It's very unlikely that, you know, now you're hard at work and you're working 60 hours a week that you're going to find the time to learn a new language. So if you can pick up one or two, do it. Uh, hard languages, obviously, are going to, well, be harder. Uh, you know, French and Spanish are, are easy, though quite useful. But Arabic, Chinese, um, if you can do it, a, a huge um, advantage in, you, in your life in the government, if that happens, or, of course, commercially, if you end up in the, in the private sector. I would say one other thing here, and that is, uh, everybody except really the president is in a certain sense a bureaucrat, right? Even the cabinet members are in a certain sense bureaucrats. How do you figure out how to be a good bureaucrat? How do you figure out, um, okay, I'm supposed to get this done. There's always a formal organization chart. You can look it up on the internet. But there's an informal network in any administration, a kind of political nervous system. How do you find out? The, the State Department just did X. What did you do that for? That's a little bit surprising. Why? How did that happen? You can't call Secretary of State every day, um, but maybe you know someone who, can, who might know or can find out for you. That's that network. I have found that um, it's an impossible thing to teach. You sort of, pretty much you have it or you don't. Um, you, you have it in your private life. You have it in college. You have it in your law firm or, or think tank, um, or you don't. And I've had a couple of experiences with not smart people, brilliant people, who came into government and uh, they couldn't quite figure out how to do that. I don't think you can teach it. Uh, in talking with you and, and reading some of your works, I have the sense of a, of a uh, tension which will lead me to my next question, the background you've described. There, there's a real... Uh, interest in human rights and commitment to human rights. But on the other hand, you've talked about your patriotism and you've talked about uh, 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 commitment to the integrity and the security, actually, mm -hmm. of the entity. So I, with that introduction, mm -hmm. uh, is the Jeffersonian ideal uh, bringing democracy to different parts of the world that are lacking in institutions, in economic development, and ridden by religious conflict, still relevant for the U.S. as a great power? Well, I think it is. Um, 
I really do, and I think it's part of the greatness of the United States that we don't just stand for a certain geographical area or race um, uh, or bloodline. Um, we stand for ideas, and we're created on the basis of uh, certain ideas. Um, I think that's <coughs> still relevant today. Um, look, um, I like to tell people who are critical of the United States government, including when I'm in it, for not doing enough to, to, for human rights. A government is not an NGO. The purpose of Amnesty International and Freedom House and Human Rights Watch and all is to promote human rights, period, end of statement. Not to say, well, well we have commercial interests, we have financial interests, we have security interests. No, no, no. They're not doing balancing. They have one concern. No government can do that. And so the government has to juggle and balance these. And usually, human rights is the loser, um, really under both parties, under almost any president. Um, I, it seems to me that, and I would, let, let me give you the real politique argument for this. Very briefly, it's legitimacy. I think that, that illegitimate governments that rule exclusively by brute force are not stable and over time will become more and more brutal. And their instability and their nasty nature make them uh, not such great allies for the United States. So it seems to me that from a, a almost, a, you might say, a realist point of view as well as a principled human rights point of view, we need to be concerned about um, human rights practices and democracy. And I think the difference here is the one that um, uh, Jackson, Moynihan, Ronald Reagan uh, saw, which is it is a very good thing to try to get a man or woman unjustly imprisoned out of prison. But they can put them in jail faster than we can get them out. The only way to uh, end the practice is, is, is to help people create a, a democratic system in which people are not unjustly imprisoned. So we should be trying to help. We can't impose that except, you know, Germany and Japan at the end of World War II as conquerors. But, um, but people are fighting for this in dozens of countries around the world. And the question is whether we help them or are indifferent. And I think indifference is a very bad policy. Uh, I think it's fair to say you were controversial uh, when you worked on Latin America. And uh, my, I, I, help us understand how you navigate the concern about the security of the state you're committed to. Mm. And on the other hand, this this concern with human rights, which yeah. is in the back of your head. I mean, because you, you must go through a period where people don't know that you're thinking about or trying mm. to do the second. And yeah. Yeah. Well, there are moments where you have to just put human rights questions aside. And the best example, I think, is uh, Stalin's Russia, World War II. There is a world war. We need them as allies to defeat Nazi Germany. So uh, we make an alliance. Um, and we don't say anything about human rights uh, practices in the Soviet Union, which obviously were great crimes. Um, you could probably come up with um, more recent examples. Um, in, the, in the beginning of the Afghanistan war, we're talking about, what, 90, uh, sorry, 2001, 2002, um, we need the stands, Uzbekistan, you know, because we need to be able to get supplies into Afghanistan. We pretty much overlooked the human rights questions there. 
I can defend those moments, I think. Um, more broadly, though, I think it's, it's always a balance. And, and I would give you the example of El Salvador um, under the Reagan administration. It's interesting. Um, there is a murderous military junta governing El Salvador in uh, 1979, 1980, including, for those who have long memories, uh, the murder of a number of church women, ultimately the murder of the Archbishop of El Salvador, Archbishop Romero. Um, but Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter does not cut American aid to El Salvador. Why not? Well, it's kind of a rail politique because he believes, I think, uh, if we do that, the FMLN, communist guerrillas, will take over and the human rights situation will get worse and be essentially irremediable. Um, Reagan comes in. Same idea. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to cut aid. Um, but we start a policy that took years to do, uh, ultimately succeeds, I would say, under George Shultz, of trying to uh, create, assist, impose, choose your verb, a civilian government. Death squad killings in the period, Reagan comes in January 20th, 1981, uh, over a period of about two or three years, death squad killings go down 90%. Ultimately, Jose Napoleon Duarte is elected president and begins, begins the democratization. El Salvador today, by the way, remains a democracy, and the FMLN has won the election. Now, when we were doing that, it was extremely controversial because, for example, what Congress did was to say, uh, here's the aid to El Salvador, but you can't give it unless you certify human rights progress. So uh, Reagan would certify human rights progress. And human rights groups and many on the left of the Democratic Party would go nuts. You're lying. Um, this is, this is a really criminal. You're misleading. What about the murders here of the archbishop and, and, and nuns? And, of course, our answer to that was, first of all, well, where were you when Jimmy Carter was doing it? But put that aside. That's partisan. Um, our answer to that was, there's progress. There's progress. The glass is for the first time in a long time, maybe a quarter full, and soon it'll be half full. And then our hope. So um, this is the argument you have. And I, in a sense, as long as we're having an honest argument, I don't blame the human rights groups because they're not looking at the question of a communist takeover. Maybe they should be. Uh, I would argue they should be. You're doing this balancing almost all the time. There are very few places where you have a kind of, what I, I don't know, a blank slate for human rights. I mean... If I go back to the Reagan years, Paraguay it was an unimportant country. There's no canal in Paraguay. There are no bases in Paraguay. So you can have a human rights policy. That's easy. There's no other side to the question. But it's more common for it to be a fight. So, so in a way, what, what I'm hearing here is that for an actor in foreign policy, you, 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 you have to have the long view on the one hand, I mean, over time, things will move in the right direction. In, in the short term, there has to be a concern about security. Uh, in the case of Latin America, there was concern about the Soviet Union. If we, if we move to Israel, you know, there, there's a concern about terrorism and the environment. And so the human rights thing is in your mind, but, but, but it, it's not a situation or, or not a, a, a part of the puzzle that can you, you necessarily can do as much about. 
Um, you can do certain symbolic and sometimes real things in the short run, but you need a long-term strategy. If the goal is, again, not to get one person or 100 people out of prison, uh, but rather evolution toward a democratic system, a system that on its own protects human rights, it's going to take time, um, and, and you need a strategy. And I think in the case of El Salvador, for example, we had a strategy, and it worked. Um, so the problem is that, that while you're doing this, you're going to get attacked from the left and the right. I mean, we had a strategy for Chile, for example, under Reagan, and we were attacked from the right, from Gene Kirkpatrick, from Henry Kissinger, that we were repeating the errors of Cuba 59, Iran 79, Nicaragua 79. We were going to overthrow a friendly dictator, and it would, then there would be chaos, and then there would be a communist government coming in and eliminating, or in the case of Iran, a theocracy, eliminating all human rights. And, I mean, our answer to that was, no, we're not. That's not what we're doing. And we were right. Um, so you're going to get a lot of criticism because often the benefits of what you're doing are not visible and may only be visible in one or two or five years. You may not even be there by the time success is achieved or partial success is achieved. Uh, so it's, it, in a certain way, it's a thankless task, by which I mean you're just going to get attacked for doing it from inside the government, from outside the government, from the left and from the right. So you have to really believe in what you're doing. And this is one of the reasons I'm such a great admirer of George Shultz. He believed in long-term strategies, and he wasn't pushed off them by criticism. Let's talk a little about Israel and U.S. policy toward Israel, because you, you uh, are seen, I guess, as a hardliner. Mm -hmm. but, but you have a philosophy or a, a perspective on what needs to be done. And, and I think that uh, is it, is it, it's fair to say that, that you are concerned about Israel's security mm -hmm. on the one hand and that uh, the immediate and midterm problem is really to build up the institutions of uh, the Palestinian Authority so that they will be prepared to assume uh, statehood and yes. that you can't do anything in the short term and it's a mistake to do anything until those institutions and economic development have occurred. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I have been critical, for example, of President Clinton for what he was trying to do at Camp David, which, of course, uh, didn't, didn't come off, because he was handing a state to Yasser Arafat. He wasn't saying, first, you have to have a democracy. Um, first, you have to end terror. Not, just, just, here you are, um, which I think would have been dangerous not only for Israel but for Jordan. If you flash forward to today, I don't think it's changed too much. Um, suppose you could create a Palestinian state tomorrow. Uh, first of all, uh, how would you guarantee that Hamas wouldn't take it over and be a danger to Jordan and Israel? <clears throat> if you eliminate terrorism, let's say we create a new world and there's no violence, has that state survived? It has no airport. It has no seaport. It has no economy. It really doesn't produce much. Uh, uh, it has no central bank, no currency. I mean, it has nothing. So how does it survive? How is it a viable state? So institution building. Now, that was the theory of the former Prime Minister, Salam Fayyad, and he didn't get much support. He didn't get it from us. He didn't get it from Israel. He didn't get it from the Arabs, uh, Arab states. Uh, it's not very sexy. It's not very romantic, you know, mm -hmm. building up the system of education and the court system and the health system and all of this. It is a kind of Zionist point of view. In this sense, you have the uh, 
first uh, Jews moving moving back uh, 1870s, 1880s. Fast forward to the to the Balfour Declaration, 1970. Nobody had any idea when there would be an independent Jewish state. They believed it would happen someday, and they believed they had to be ready to govern. Whether it was in 1970, go back to 1910. You don't know there's going to be a First World War, much less a Second World War. At the end of the war, 1945, was there going to be a Jewish state in a year or two, or maybe 10 years? Just be ready. And I think that was what Prime Minister Fayyad was in essence saying. We need to build these institutions, whether it's a year or two or 10 years. They're not built. And I'm particularly insistent on the question of uh, what people call incitement, which is the glorification of terrorism and the teaching of hatred of Israel and Jews, which has been going on and going on and going on. And of course, every president, including the one I served, says this is terrible and it has to stop. We don't really mean it. And it doesn't stop. And so even now, 2017, you're getting uh, you know, schools and parks and so forth named after murderers, convicted terrorist murderers. What are you teaching Palestinian children if those models are held up as the finest of our citizenry? So I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I think it can be done. That is, I think that, that uh, Palestine, Israel, United States, Arab states can, working together, considerably improve the way Palestinians live and, and move forward. I think the problem has been in part, you, you know, it's never, it's never very um, <laughs> exciting to say to a president, nothing's going to happen on your watch, but the slow, steady accretion of institutional sure. life. So somebody else will reap the harvest. Um, everybody wants the handshake on the White House lawn. I mean, uh, uh, Clinton did, Bush did, uh, you know, I worked for Bush, and that was really what we were going for. We want a comprehensive final settlement now. That's what Trump seems to want. He's not going to get it, in my opinion. And it would be much better to say uh, they're not ready for that now, the Israelis and Palestinians, but we can improve things and build the basis for future progress. Politically, that's a hard choice for, very, for many reasons. And, and I want to focus on, on one thing, which I want to tap your concern about human rights, both in the sense of the, the human rights of the Palestinians during this interim. Mm -hmm. I mean, long term, let's not disagree, but in the short term, their human rights situation within you know, the West Bank uh, and, and obviously some of that comes from Hamas and, and mm. Gaza. So it's, it's not just the uh, political situation uh, imposed by the occupation, but also the cost to Israel in terms of human rights because the problem of managing mm. an occupation. So, so how do yeah. you think about that? Well, you know, the occupation begins in 1967, it continues because you can't just, as Sippy Livni, the former foreign minister, used to say, throw the key over the fence and say, you've got to have a state. Mm -hmm. um, it's too dangerous. I, should, I said to Israel and to Jordan, I should add, to Palestinians, um, because if you create another Hamas state or similar dictatorship, um, there won't be any human rights there either. Um, so I think you could get today a majority of Israelis to do uh, a two-state agreement if they could be um, satisfied as to the 
security issues. I do think generally people underestimate the difficulty of this. There's a reason it hasn't been done. And it's not that, that it's never been tried or that people are stupid or filled with hate. No, it's because it's really hard, like Jerusalem. Coming up with a, 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 a solution on Jerusalem that will be agreed by all parties is very hard. Um, look, on the human rights situation, uh, there are two problems for Palestinians living in the West Bank. One is the occupation. Nobody ever anywhere likes a military occupation. But the second is the Palestinians themselves. I mean, you have the restrictions on freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, political freedom coming from President Abbas, from, the, from uh, the PA, the Palestinian Authority itself, which is, which is in essence the Fatah party. So um, it's not just um, imposed by Israel. Also, uh, where do you have more freedom of speech to criticize the government? The West Bank today, under a non-democratic system and under occupation, or Egypt? I'd say you got more in Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, I mean, this is a very difficult problem, and it's one, uh, there's no way of cutting this Gordian knot. I do think, however, that we should be, we should be pressing harder, we in this case being all the aid donors, uh, particularly the EU and the United States, for an opening of Palestinian politics. In 2006, they had a free election for January 2006 for parliament, which Hamas won 44 to 41% of the popular vote. Um, since then, it's more than 10 years ago, uh, the losing Fatah party has done nothing to, nothing to reform itself and become a more effective and appealing democratic political party. If you want an independent Palestinian state, you must want it to be a democracy. How do you have a democracy without democratic political parties competing fairly with each other? You still don't have that. Uh, you don't have it because the people in Fatah don't want it. We should be pushing, I think, harder for an opening of Palestinian politics. What, what about Israel? Do you, do, you, do you worry about what the occupation does to the Israeli polity in terms of, of enforcement? Or do you think there's enough of a commitment to liberal, secular uh, values that it's a problem, but it's not pressing. Yeah, I, I think um, there's one tragic aspect of this relating to terrorism, which is if you go back to 67, 68, 69, after Israel conquered the West Bank, um, there's no border. There's no border. Israelis go to Jericho, uh, uh, West Bank Palestinians go to Israel to go to the beach. And the border really is a creation, I would argue, of, of terrorism. Uh, I am not worried about um, this sort of what it does to Israeli values and so forth. I mean, I look at the Israeli press um, every day. Um, I go there several times a year. There's an endless debate over exactly this question. What's happening to us? What are we like? What about that incident? What about that incident? Um, and as long as they're having that debate, I think it's proof that uh, the the impact uh, you fear is is actually not um, happening. The concern of the Arab states about Iran uh, and the Shia-Sunni conflict uh, is changing the equation, obviously. In the medium term and the long term, do you think that will lead to a rec both recognition of Israel and a willingness of the Arab states to to 
come up with a reasonable policy toward the Palestinians? You know, if I had to give you one word answer, it would be no. <coughs> um, it has changed the, situa the situation already, as you suggest, in that there are lots of um, connections now between Israel and Jordan, Egypt, the Gulf states. Um, but they're mostly hidden. They're mostly intelligence and military relationships. That's what the Arabs want. If they were to bring this out of the closet, there would be a counter-reaction from uh, not just jihadis, but from substantial portions of their own population. So in a way, they have the best of all possible worlds now. They're getting the military intelligence uh, relationship that they want without the political downside. I don't know that they want much more than that. They've made minimal efforts to change public opinion with respect to Israel. I, I would have to say, if you look at the Saudi treatment of Israel and say Al Arabiya TV and radio, it's better. There's no question it's, it's, it's better. But um, basically, I, I think we're a long way from that, um, you know, from that great day when everyone has normal relations with everyone else. It will require a um, uh, Palestinian solution. Um, that is not, I think, because the Arab rulers love the Palestinians. They certainly don't treat them as if they love them, and they are grudging in giving them uh, aid money. And it isn't just because oil's only, you know, $50 a barrel. When it was $120 a barrel, they were grudging. Um, but again, it's politics. I mean, they're worried about their own survival in their own countries. This is an emotive issue. So there's going to have to be progress on Israeli-Palestinian relations before we reach the, this much better relationship. So do you worry in the long term? Because you're talking about the long term. You've built up, uh, hypothetically, you've built up Palestinian institutions. There's economic de uh, development. But isn't it still a problem for Israel because of what you call what we call the street in the mm. Arab world and the the uh, anti-Semitism and propaganda that emanates both from the Palestinian Authority and from the Arab states. So a critic of what you're saying might say, well, the long term is never going to happen, <laughs> even if you get partly there. Well, uh, you know, how long is the long term? Mm -hmm. How many centuries are we talking about? Um, I'm not such an optimist about this. I think there are deep wells of anti-Semitism of, let's, let's call it with a lack, less academic term, hatred of Jews in most Arab states. And, and poll data, I think, suggests this among Palestinians, Jordanians, Egyptians, um, Gulf Arabs. So I think we're a very long way um, from achieving that. Uh, I also think, and I've written this, um, again, assume away violence. That Palestinian state uh, is not really viable. It may be viable in a, in a certain institutional sense if you can develop, you know, courts of law, good police force, hospital, educational system. But economically, I don't see it. And I think it's either going to lean on Israel or it's going to lean on Jordan. It's more sensible for it to lean on Jordan because it's a fellow, it would be a fellow Arab state. And I, I remember an Israeli general saying to me, again, assuming perfect peace, um, he would not take down that security fence uh, because he said, you know, I want those millions of Palestinians to use Queen Alia Airport in Amman, and I want them to use Aqaba, not Eilat, and I don't want 
them shopping every day in Tel Aviv. I don't want Tel Aviv becoming a binational city. I want it to be an Israeli Jewish city. I think most Israelis have that view. So in the long run, it seems to me that a totally independent, sovereign, viable Palestinian state um, is a very hard thing to achieve. I just, I, I, I really don't know how it survives economically. Uh, you've been an active participant about uh, the state of the Jewish community and its support for Israel. And you don't uh, buy the argument that the problem is with Israel, yeah. but it's rather <clears throat> with the Jewish community. Yep. And, and you believe that it's really uh, an erosion of Jewish identity yeah. because of poor education, not following even uh, symbolically uh, the rituals, but also you see uh, intermarriage yep. as, a, as a big issue. Uh, and uh, what I want to ask you is what can you do to correct <laughs> that uh, on the one hand? And on the other hand, are you ignoring the extent that even half-Jews and young Jewish people who are fully Jews, or who are both parents being Jewish, yep. there is a concern about human rights. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's a concern for you. Sure. And so the, sure. the, the Palestine-Israel conflict is perceived as a human rights issue. Well, let's take the last part first. <clears throat> Look, um, Ariel Sharon was elected in 2001, um, came to office <clears throat> around the time George W. Bush did, so, wow, 16 years of right-wing governments, one after another in Israel. Not so surprising that American, young American Jews, who are mostly left of center, mostly Democrats, would feel a certain distance from these series, these right-wing governments. Sooner or later, that'll stop, whether it's this year or two years from now, and there'll be a left of center government. And it will be much more attractive to the to American Democrats and American liberals, and it will talk their language. And I think some of that is the sum is the product of this odd phenomenon of 16 years of right-wing governments in Israel. Um, but there's a, I, there is the other deeper problem. Um, and I think it, you know, when you ask about um, feelings toward Israel, <clears throat> you know, if you, if you take a, um, a young couple that marry, one Jew, one non-Jew, and they decide uh, we're not going to have a Jewish home. Neither of us believes in the religions in which we were raised. We're going to raise the kids without religion. And they do. Uh, and so the son or daughter grows up without any religion and with half the family, of course, being um, not Jewish. And there's no real connection to... Uh, nobody goes to Israel, never been to Israel. Why would you expect that person to have some kind of great tie to Israel? Uh, so I think that... With a non-Orthodox, non, the Orthodox are still marrying each other, but a non-Orthodox intermarriage rate of uh, into the 60s now, 60, 65 percent, um, th this identity issue is a very big issue. Is there any way to deal with it? Um, well, I can think of a, a couple of ways. One, education. That is, a Jewish mother and father um, might say, well, we, we need to give the kids more of a Jewish education, for example, Jewish day school. Um, the downside to that is partly financial, and it is, it is, 
ironic from this point of view that American Jewish organizations have been the strongest advocates of making sure that not one penny of tax money ever goes to a uh, religious school. Um, because if some money were available, I think a lot more Jewish kids would go to Jewish, would go to Jewish day school. Um, birthright is a little piece of it. This is the program that sends young American Jews, broadly defined, one Jewish parent, uh, to Israel. I think going to Israel, having, frankly, a great time there when you're, you know, 18, can possibly um, uh, be the beginning. I'd say one other thing. Are Jewish communities welcoming of intermarried couples? And it seems to me that the attitude ought to be, yes, and we encourage conversion of the non-Jewish spouse to Judaism, and we certainly encourage uh, raising the children as Jews in a Jewish home rather than with, with two religions in the home where uh, one weekend you go to synagogue, the next weekend you go to church. This happens. Uh, you celebrate uh, Hanukkah and then you celebrate Christmas. That's no way to inculcate a Jewish identity. So I think the rejectionist attitude toward intermarried couples is crazy from this sociological point of view. But I think the welcoming attitude should be combined with we welcome you, and, and we'd like to push you in this direction. How important is identification with Israel for the survival of the Jewish community in the United States? Um, I, think it's, I think it's quite important. <clears throat> if you go back and ask what were the things that created an affinity with the community, what were the, the identity issues? Well, um, First, you, these, you're talking about the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. You had a lot of immigrants. You had a lot of foreign-born Jews. We were Yiddish-speaking in Yiddish-speaking homes. This identity question didn't even arise. Okay, that's gone. The percentage of the... We had a large um, group of Russian Jews who arrived, but that's now decades ago. So the Jewish, the Jewish community is basically American-born. That ethnicity is diminishing. Holocaust also diminishing as it not only does the remembrance, the remembrance yeah, of the Holocaust, d diminishing because, I think, um, Holocaust survivors are dying out. A young Holocaust survivor now is in his or her 80s. Uh, I think that's inevitably going to diminish. The Hebrew language, not spoken much by American Jews. Uh, what is there? Um, okay, there's Jewish ritual and belief. And uh, that, but that only affects you if you believe in it. So that's maybe 15% of the population. For the rest, the vast majority, it seems to me, Israel has to be a critical part of their identity. And even in the face of uh, a global, agen uh, global agenda that says Israel is a violator of human rights, not saying that's correct. I'm just... Yeah, it, no, it's hard. Yeah. It's, a hard, it's yeah. hard work. Um, the Israelis are very bad at uh, what they call Hasbara, which I don't know what you want, sort of persuasion, propaganda, um, telling their story. Um, look, the, the, the left is against Israel globally. That's happened for a long time now. Maybe it's partly the 16 years of right-wing governments, probably deeper explanations too, including anti-Semitism. But... It is. So it's not a great surprise that this should happen in the United States, too. Why not? Why would we be immune? Um, 
uh, I think the American Jewish community and Israel have just got to try to do a better job at explaining their story. The UN here is a huge problem with its endless, endless attacks on Israel um, while virtually ignoring human rights calamities in places like Syria, let's say. Um, there's no magic formula here. Uh, uh, I think by any global standard, um, on, on issues that are otherwise thought to be hugely important, um, equality of women and equality of opportunity for women, uh, religious freedom for minorities, uh, treatment of gays. I mean, Israel is in the stratosphere, and people don't seem to know it or care about it. So somehow they need to do a better job. Uh, and again, I think I, I happen to like Prime Minister Netanyahu, but I do think that at some point they'll have a left-of-center government, and that'll help. One last question requiring a brief uh, answer. If somebody were to watch this and hear the story of your intellectual journey, what lessons might they learn if they want to go into government and do foreign policy? Well, that takes a 40-minute answer, okay, but I'd say but very brief. I'll give you I know. two minutes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I once asked George Schultz, after he was Secretary of State, what does it take to be a good Secretary of State? And he thought for a minute and he said, well, it helps to have some ideas. And I would say that that is the answer, that, that I would tell students and other people, it isn't just about getting a job and then a better job and then maybe even a better job. It isn't about um, amassing power and influence, or it shouldn't be. Uh, the critical thing, I think, is to know why you're doing this. Do you, wh what is it that you want to achieve? What is it that you believe in? And uh, to me, that separates a lot of people in the government, many of them I disagree with because they're much further to the left, but they, they're trying for something. They believe in something, and I have great respect for that. And I think that's the thing that, that people should ask themselves. Uh, what am I doing this for? What do I believe in? Well, on that note, uh, Mr. Abrams, I want to thank you very much for this uh, very engaging uh, and thoughtful conversation. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.